0: All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, like Aaron said, I hope you are enjoying the first couple of days of real winter. Uh, my son Caleb and I were out uh, this uh, this weekend. Uh, he he woke up Saturday morning to see kind of like, uh, like the quarter millimeter of dusting, and he's like, Dad, let's get the sleds. I'm like, nah, 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 buddy. We got not enough. Right, we're going to have to hold it we were out uh, later that day we're out we were out, uh, we were out uh, shopping for ugly Christmas sweaters for our small group party and uh, we found this this Olaf shirt that said all I want for Christmas is summer and I was like if that was not a children's shirt like I couldn't fit in it but that's my spirit shirt right there like I'm that's all I want for Christmas is summer, so anyways, Caleb and I are a little bit different ends of the spectrum when it comes to winter, right, but I do enjoy his enthusiasm about that, so anyways, I'm um, excited to continue walking our way through the book of Nehemiah this morning. Uh, this morning, we actually get to the, the climax of the whole book of Nehemiah, the whole story, and if you are new this morning or you're visiting, don't worry, uh, I'll catch you up before we get there. You are not too late. Uh, I'll catch you up on the story, and then we'll we'll dive into that together, but from the beginning, what we've always said about the book of Nehemiah is that, like every other book, Nehemiah is not really about Nehemiah or ultimately the things that happened. in it. Ultimately, all the books of the Bible are ultimately books that are about God. They reveal to us something about who he is and what he's like and what it looks like for us to follow him. And the story that we see about God in the book of Nehemiah is all about showing us how God is a God who is sovereign and faithful to keep his promises. And what you see happening throughout the whole book of Nehemiah is that what's going on is that God's using this man named Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of promises that he's made to his people, to forgive them and redeem them and to renew them, and ultimately to once again cause them to be a people who will live in God's city for his purposes, that they might be a people that reveal his glory and his goodness to the world, which is the very thing that they were always meant to do. And so we saw in the first half of that story, the first six chapters of Nehemiah, how that story begins by with us meeting this guy named uh, Nehemiah. He's a Jewish exile living in what is now the Persian Empire, and he's serving uh, King Artaxerxes, who's the, the king of Persia, the most powerful influential king in the world at the time. And what happens is Nehemiah, while he's doing his job, he gets this report about the sad state of Jerusalem and its walls there. And we see in chapter one how he finds out that, that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and have been destroyed. And God's people living there are in great distress and shame. And what happens is, is that although that wasn't new information to Nehemiah, it's like 140-year-old information, what happens is God causes it to hit him in a new way. And God gives him his heart for the situation. And so Nehemiah's heart breaks over the reality that, that the condition of Jerusalem's walls and the people there is ultimately proclaiming a message of shame and disgrace about God, who's... Who, who that city and those people represent? And so, because God, uh, because Nehemiah reveres God's name and he loves God's people, uh, he knows that he has to do something about it. And so, after months of praying and planning, he goes to this pagan king and he asks him not only to take a lot of time off of work, but also that this pagan king would personally fund the rebuilding efforts in Nehemiah's hometown and that he would personally endorse those rebuilding efforts, in spite of the fact that this very same king had already told, uh, made like a law that he did not want Jerusalem ever to get rebuilt. And so, miraculously, he says yes to all of Nehemiah's requests. He goes above and beyond. And so, it's obvious that uh, what's going on here is that it's not Nehemiah's agenda, but it's God's. And so, God's the one behind everything going on here. And so, Nehemiah, with God's support, obviously goes, he heads to Jerusalem. He rallies the people there to, uh, to to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and remove the shame and disgrace that their condition is bringing on them and on God. And what we see is that in spite of all kinds of opposition and threats and all kinds of things, uh, that they do just that. They rebuild the wall. We read in chapter 6, after amazingly just 52 days, these walls and gates of Jerusalem, which had laid and broken down and destroyed for 140 plus years, have been rebuilt. And it's incredible, right? And you'd think that the rebuilding of the walls would be the climax of the story. But again, that's chapter 6. And we're in chapter 12 where the real climax is. And the reality is is that the rebuilding of the walls is not the climax of the story because Nehemiah's goal was never just to rebuild the walls. It was always to ultimately rebuild the community of God's people. Because what we see throughout the Old Testament right, is that it wasn't just the state of Jerusalem's walls that were intended to reflect and reveal the character and nature of God. It was the people that lived inside of those walls that were always meant to reveal the gods that the city and the people represented. And so what we see happening is that the rebuilding of God's people into a community that reflects the glory and goodness of God, that's what the whole second half of the book of Nehemiah is all about. We saw in chapter 8 how that rebuilding work, it began with reestablishing the word of God as the right, good, and highest authority in their lives, and as they heard God's word read and taught, and as they submitted themselves to the authority of God's word, what we see happening is that they're experiencing this godly sorrow over their sin because they're realizing all the ways that their attitudes and their actions are out of line with God's word. But this godly sorrow that they're experiencing doesn't just lead them to sadness or regret, what happens is we see in chapters 9 and 10, it produces a true, genuine repentance in them. We saw in chapter 9 that, that repentance began like it always does with, with confession. And chapter 9, it's this humble prayer of confession where God's people are owning their sin and all of the ways that it is impacting their lives and the consequences that it has had in their lives and in their community. And, and at the same time, they're crying out to God in faith and in hope that he would show them mercy like he had done so many times before. But we saw in chapter 10 how their repentance, it doesn't stop with confession. It doesn't stop with just owning their sin. What we saw in chapter 10 is that it leads them to actually make a covenant as a community outlining the ways that they're wanting to commit to walking in new patterns of obedience to God. Because the reality is is that true repentance isn't just about confessing our sin, admitting we're headed the wrong direction. True repentance is actually about turning around and heading a new direction and walking in new patterns of obedience unto God rather than continuing in rebellion and sin. And so what you have in the second half of Nehemiah is nothing short of a spiritual revival amongst God's people. It's this really cool picture. People who have been long since been rebellious and hard hearted towards God have now in response to seeing God's power in rebuilding, empowering the rebuilding of their the walls of their city and in response to hearing and being reminded of God's grace by reading his word. What you see See is that they turn away from their sin and back towards God in humble repentance and in faith. And it's just like this beautiful, beautiful picture of this renewal that happens. And it's such an encouragement, not just that God renews people, but that he renews communities of people together, right? It's not just individuals that God transforms and shapes, but it's whole communities of people and What we see happening in the book of Nehemiah is that all of this rebuilding and revitalization, it culminates in our passage this morning that we're at in Nehemiah chapter 12. It's kind of the the pinnacle of the book, the top of the mountain. This is where everything the story has been leading to in chapter 12. And they have this huge celebration to dedicate these, the rebuilt walls of God's city and the renewed community of God's people back to God. And as we study this morning, what we're going to see in our passage is this picture of what genuine worship really looks like. It's really cool. And a lot of times people, I think, think that worship is primarily about singing, right? And we absolutely are going to see singing in our passes this morning because singing absolutely is a part of our worship and the way we express our worship for God. But what I want to show you this morning as we look at God's word and see this genuine picture of worship is that, is that real worship, true worship is about so much more than just singing. It's about God's people joyfully responding to who God is and all that he has done by sacrificially dedicating all they are and all they have to him. It's about God's people responding to him and all that he's done on their behalf in joy, giving themselves all they are, all they have back to God. That's what real worship is about. And so with that in mind, let me pray. We'll dive into Nehemiah chapter 12 and see what God's word has for us this morning. So. Jesus, thanks so much for our time together in your word this morning. And we're so grateful that even though this story about your people and about Nehemiah is thousands of years old, we are so grateful that it is anything but irrelevant. God, and we pray as your people today that you might empower us by your spirit to respond rightly to your word and to be characterized, not just as a community that sings joyfully unto you, but that joyfully gives all we are and all we have to your purposes and for your glory and dedicates ourselves to you. And so uh, I don't have any power to bring that reality about in our community, God, and I don't have any power to do it, but you do. And so we ask humbly as we gather to study your word that by your spirit, you might change those realities in us and that you might cause us to be a people that is characterized by a joyful, genuine worship of you. We need you for all that, God. So for our good and for your glory, we pray that you do that work in us this morning. Amen. All right, well, Nehemiah chapter 12. Uh, we're going to start in verse 27, dip our feet into the first couple of verses of chapter 13 this morning. So begins this way at the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving with music of cymbals, with harps and with lyres. The musicians were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophetes and the Beth Gilgal and from the area of Geba and Asbometh, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem because nobody wanted all that noise right in the city, right? That's not in the Bible. That's just a comment. You can leave that or take that, okay? Verse 30. Uh, says, when the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people and the gates and the walls. And I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall, and I assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right towards the dungate. And Hoshiah and the half of the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah and Ezra, and Mesholam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, and the son of Mattaniah the son of Micaiah, and the son of Zach. The son of Asaph and his associates Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Mayai, and Nathanel, Judah, and Hananai, with music, musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God, and Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession at the fountain gate they continued directly up to the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and they passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east and the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction and I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people past the towers of the ovens to the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim and the Jashana gate and the fish gate the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate and that path that he's describing that's the same path he took in chapter 2 when he's surveying all the broken Down walls. And so now he's walking on top of the walls that God empowered to get rebuilt. And he's remembering that same journey that God has done and reminding themselves about all that's so cool, right? Goes on, verse 40, right? He says, The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. And so did I, together with half the officials as well as the priests, Eliakim, Masaiah, Minamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Masaiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, uh, Jehoiahan, Malchijah, Elam, and Azer. The choirs sang under the direction of Jezariah. and on that day here's the pinnacle of the whole book of Nehemiah ever this is the top of the mountain right here, 1243. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. And the women and children, they also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. What a beautiful picture of God's people worshiping. Now, at that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions of first fruits and tithes, and From the fields around the towns they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and the Levites, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And so in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed to the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. And on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people And there was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned that curse into a blessing. When the people heard this, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. All right, we're gonna, I promise, we're gonna get back to that last verse there. I know that can feel a little little tension in that, especially in our day. I promise we'll get back there and explain that, so. Trust me. Uh, Secondly, so like I said, this passage, the the passage that we're in in chapter 12 this morning, the beginning of chapter 30, it's the climax of the whole book of of Nehemiah. Everything's been leading to this point. And and what we see happening at the climax of the story is, is this incredibly joyful worship service right? Everyone's gathered together to celebrate all that God has done in their community and amongst the people. And there's all kinds of musicians with their instruments and people banging on cymbals and making joyful noises to God. There's these two huge choirs that are singing songs of thanksgiving and praise. And and while I absolutely want to show you this morning that worship is about more than songs, what I also don't want to accidentally do is to communicate that singing to God doesn't matter. Because that is not what we see in Scripture. You see, from the very beginning, when Adam sang the first song of praise to God after meeting Eve for the first time, God's people have always been a singing people, right? We read in Zephaniah chapter three that God himself exalts over his people. It says, with loud singing, Repeatedly throughout the whole Bible, God's people are encouraged to sing to God. If you survey the whole Bible in total, the Bible contains over 400 references to singing to God and 50 direct commands that we should do it as God's people. The longest book of the whole Bible is the book of Psalms. It's a collection of songs. And in the New Testament, we're commanded not just once but twice to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another whenever we gather. Right? So the, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us why singing is so important, but it's very clear that it is important to God's people. And uh, like I said, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us why that is, but just on a few practical levels, uh, I think there's just some just very practical things. One, singing helps you to remember things, right? right? Every culture, no matter where you're at, uses songs to help us remember stories or help us remember things. I dare you, try to recite the alphabet without singing it. Right? You're going to get to D, and you're like, I don't even know what comes after D without singing, right? Like, I don't, how does my, my brain, is not functioning here, right? right? Because what happens is re- singing helps us to remember things, right? And if we're singing songs about God, it helps us to remember who He is and what He's done. That's why at River City, it's really important to us. As, as we think about the songs that we sing here at River City, we're careful to think about what those songs say. Because singing helps us to remember. And so what you're trying to remember, that matters, right? And so we try to think carefully about not just uh, if the songs are catchy or cool, but what they say. Because what we're remembering and sinking deep into our hearts, that really does matter, right? Additionally, the reality is that God's wired us as people in such a way that music has this unique ability to connect our head with our hearts. It really does, right? Have you ever tried to read the words of a song versus singing it, right? Right? It is not the same, right? Not the same, is it? Right? When you hear a song sung, right, there's something that happens internally where it connects not just with the words, but it connects your heart and your emotions with what is happening, what is is being sung about. And music, it amplifies our emotions. And while it is certainly important that we as God's people are not characterized by being ruled by our emotions, Uh, God did not make us emotionless robots, and he did that for a reason, right? And so music is one of the ways that helps us to connect our head with our heart, right? And to worship God with our whole being, not just our minds or not just our emotions. Music helps us to do with both of those things, right? And so singing is this absolutely important part of our expression of our worship to God. But it's so important that you understand, uh, scripture never describes musical worship as the ultimate or even primary way. supposed to worship God. It is absolutely this important expression of our worship, but it is never the primary or ultimate way that we're called to express worship. Rather, we see in places like Romans 12 how the, the way that we're called to worship God is ultimately through surrendering and devoting our whole lives unto him. Romans 12 says it this way, that in view of God's mercy, we're to offer our bodies, ourselves, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says this, that this is your true and proper worship. And so worship is not just about songs. It is not less than singing. But it is certainly more than that. And that's what we see happening in Nehemiah chapter 12, right? We see this picture of true worship, right? God's people are coming together, not just to dedicate the rebuilt walls of the city to God, but they're coming together to dedicate themselves to God, their, their whole selves. We read in verse, for, verse 30, that when the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, that they also purified the people and the gates and the walls. So purification, that's about setting something apart for worship. Purifying something is about setting something apart for worship, right? And by purifying themselves in the walls, what they're saying is, God, God, this people and this city, we are yours. And we are for you and we are about you. God, we set ourselves apart that we might exist for your praise and your glory and your worship. And so that when people see our city and they see our community, what they see is you. And so, God, we give ourselves holy to your kingdom and your purposes and your glory. God, we don't want to live for our own name and our own glory anymore. God, we want to live for your name and your glory. We want our city and our community and everything about this place to be about you and for you. God, they're saying, God, we are all in on you and we are for you. That's what that's what that's all about, right? They're dedicating all themselves to God. In a lot of ways, that's what baptism is about, right? It's about standing up and saying, God, I am all yours. I am for you, and I want my life and every corner of it to be about you and about your glory, right? It's a big part of what that's about, right? And so it's so important that what you see, though, is that, is that they don't just dedicate themselves and their city to God. You've got to see this. They dedicate their things and their finances to God as well, right? We read in verse 44 through 47 that as a part of their worship celebration, they appoint people to be in charge of receiving and storing the first fruits and tithes that the people had pledged in chapter 10 that they were giving to support the work of of the work of the temple and the worship of God in their city, right? If you've been involved in small groups at River City this fall, you know that we've uh, spent the basically the whole semester studying a bunch of the parables of Jesus that are found throughout the Gospels. And, and one of the most common themes that you see coming up again and again in the parables is that Jesus is always, lots of times, he's talking about money in the parables. And in, in my small group this past week, we were kind of asking the question, why is that? Why does it seem like this theme? Why does Jesus keep talking so much about money? What's going on there, right? And the conclusion that we kind of came to is that in the parables, what Jesus is almost always going after is he's trying to highlight how in God's kingdom, it's not just about the external things. It's about what's going on in your heart that really matters in the context of the kingdom. And, and he's getting at, right, the reality is, is that how you view and use money is one of, if not the best indicators of what's going on in your heart. Right, it's often been said right, that if you want to know what you worship, then look at your checking account. Right? Look at the things you spend your money on. Look at the things you make sacrifices to devote yourself to. right? It's one of the best ways to see what the things are that you really care about. right? See, the way that we view and use money, it often reveals what it is that we truly worship. Right? And I think the reason why Jesus warns so much about loving and pursuing and relying on material wealth is not because money in and of itself is the problem, but because money is the means to worshiping all kinds of things, right? More than almost anything else, money is the means by which you can really get the things you worship, right? Whether that's power and influence, money can get you that, right? Right? Some people love money and pursue it because uh, it gives them approval from other people. For others, at the root of a love of money is a, a longing for control and security, right? If I have enough, I don't have to worry. For many, it's, it's this desire to live this comfortable life that's free from just worry or, or anxiety, right? They just want to have it easy. And money is the means by which you can get almost all that stuff. And so in and of itself, it's not a problem, but it is the means by which we worship all kinds of things that aren't God, right? And so in giving these people, in giving their first fruits and in giving of their finances and dedicating not just themselves, but their things and their money to God, what they're saying is, they're not just dedicating their city to God, they're saying, God, everything we have is yours. Everything. God, you get our whole heart Not just our behaviors, you get the things that we love the most. And we want to give ourselves entirely over to you. I just want to ask you, church, does the way that you view and use your money and your things, does it reveal that you have dedicated not just your whole self, but all of your things to God? Or does it just reveal that there's something else that you really worship? See, a lot of times what happens is we can kind of fool ourselves into believing that God just wants our external behaviors, right? But the reality that we see throughout Scripture is that what God's after is our hearts. And I just want to be clear, you cannot give God your whole heart if you don't give him control of your finances and of your things. You just can't do it. It's not possible. Right? I just want to be clear here. What I am not saying, right, is that uh, you should just give all of your money away to the church or missions or whatever it is, right? In fact, I'm not even encouraging you to give some certain percent because in the New Testament, the Bible just doesn't even give us that, and so where the Bible's quiet, I'm going to be quiet, right? But what I am saying, right, is that genuine worship is characterized by letting God instruct and direct how you view and use your money and your things. It's letting Him be the one who who directs and who outlines what it looks like for us as his people to view how we view and use our money and our things, right? The reality that we see in scripture is that we are stewards, not owners, or stewards of all that we have. It's all God's, right? And so we're to use it as he directs, not just for our own good, but ultimately for his glory, right? And so like we see happening in this passage, is that the people here, they set up some systems and some structures so that they can like actually follow through on the commitments that they made in the last chapter about dedicating their finances and things to God, right? And so they set up some systems and structures so how to actually follow through on doing that. And maybe like them, you guys need to do some of that as well. You need to Maybe you need to set up some systems and structures to follow through on using and viewing your, your, your money and your things the way that God calls you to do it, right? If you want to learn more about that, I would really Encourage you, come to the budgeting and finances seminar in January. Lots of good, really practical stuff there that I think will be helpful, helping you think about some of that kind of stuff. So we see that true worship is ultimately about dedicating, like again, all we are and all we have to God, saying God. You get to be in charge of everything. All of it's yours, right? And the reality that we see in the passage and throughout the Bible is that is that doing that, dedicating all we are and all we have to God it is it will always require sacrifice always there's no way around that genuine worship is always sacrificial we read in verse 43 right it says that on that day they offered great sacrifices here's the reality church you always make sacrifices for whatever you worship always right right? We always sacrificially will either be sacrificially worshipping God or we will sacrificially be worshipping something else. If your God if the thing that is at the top of the importance of your life, if that is your career, right? You will make all kinds of sacrifices in all kinds of areas of your life in order to get the thing that you are longing for. If your God, the thing that you care most about, the thing that matters most in the world to you is your kids. You will make all kinds of sacrifices to bring about whatever it is that you are are trying to accomplish in them, if your God is power and influence, you will make all kinds of sacrifices, and you will lose friends, and you will lose all kinds of things so that you can get the power and influence that you are looking for. If you're God's approval, you will make all kinds of sacrifices to get the approval of the people or things you are looking for. You always sacrifice for the thing you worship. And you'll either be sacrificially worshiping God or you will be sacrificially worshiping something else. Right, genuine worship, sacrificial worship, it is costly. You see in the passage, it was costly for these people to dedicate themselves and their things to God. It's costly. You have to remember this, right? First, it was costly financially, right? It's important to remember that even though the context of chapter twelve is this joyful worship celebration, the greater picture that we see, the the greater context of this time, was of economic and political crisis for the period, the people of God, not one of prosperity. Right? Yes, they had been back in the promised land after years of exile, and yes, the walls of their city had been rebuilt, but they were still under the financial and political thumb of the Persian Empire. And as we saw back in the early chapters of the book, the Persian Empire's taxes were incredibly high. And so these people were not thriving financially, which just further serves to highlight the reality that their commitment to giving of their first fruits. giving of their finances to support the work and the worship of God and their great sacrifices that they make in verse 43, that that was sacrificial giving for them. They're not giving out of this lush abundance. They're giving out of a lack Their giving is sacrificial. Simmer reminds me about how Paul in 2 Corinthians, he commends the Macedonian believers who do the same thing he says about them, that in the midst of their severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, he says, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond entirely on their own, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by God's will to us as well. You see, a true worship is always sacrificial and that will involve your finances in some way, shape, or form. But it's not just financially sacrificial that we see happening. Genuine worship is sacrificial in all kinds of ways. We see that happening in the at the beginning of chapter 13, right? We see that their genuine, true worship, what well, it was relationally and it was socially sacrificial as well. We see in first uh, chapter 13, right, how they, they're reading God's word about how no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. And then what they do is we see them taking action on that. And I just wanna take a minute to take an aside here like I promised earlier that, that this removal of foreigners from Israel should not be viewed as like racism or as racial exclusivism in any way. Way, shape or form what's what's happening is that this is about spiritual purity see what you see happening throughout the Old Testament is that as God's people uh, build relationships and intermarry with people of, of that worship all kinds of other gods it endlessly always leads to God's people running from God and starting to worship and live in sin live in sin and rebellion against God right and so this is about a spiritual kind of purity but that's also right because it's about that that's also why we read about people like Ruth the whole book of Ruth, a couple summers ago, we studied that book. Ruth was a Moabite, a Moabite woman who we read not only is welcomed into the family of God, but Jesus himself includes her in his family line. Right, Her name is listed amongst the people that Jesus directly descends from. And so this is not like a racism thing here. It's about God's people saying we, will, we need to worship God wholeheartedly and to be careful about not being led off astray right so that aside right separating themselves from the people right it, from the the surrounding people that would have been incredibly sacrificial right cuz the reality is that the israelites here in this time even though they're from jerusalem they would call this the promised land right none of these people have lived here in over 100 years So they're more foreigners than anyone else who's actually living here. They have no political power. They have no social or economic standing amongst the people of the day in that area. right? And so one of the best ways that you would climb the social and economic ladders in the ancient world is by intermarrying with people who are farther up the ladder than you or by uh, creating all kinds of relationships with people who were outside of of the thing and farther up the ladder than you. And so for God's people here to say, no, God, we, we are going to we are going to worship you and we're going to put the priority of worshiping you as our chief goal that would have been really sacrificial for them it would have drastically delayed any kind of political influence or social power that they might have had in the area right It was sacrificial for them and so too it is for us as New Testament believers, while we're not under the same kinds of restrictions that we see here being outlined in the law, the reality is that following Jesus is often relationally sacrificial. I remember, especially in a lot of years I did college ministry, and I remember oftentimes as college students would be coming to faith in Jesus, they'd be uh, dating or in relationships with people that weren't Christians, and oftentimes God's word would be calling them and challenging them to say, to 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 worship God. Right? And say, God, we're gonna date and we're gonna marry people that worship you. We're not gonna do that with people. And it was often sacrificial the way people had to cut off relationships or postpone marriages or all kinds of things because they were trying to worship God first. Worshiping God is sacrificial in all kinds of ways. Right? It's always sacrificial. Romans 12 says, right, we're to offer our bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Living sacrifices, right? But here's the good news that we see in the passage. Is that as God's people, as we sacrificially dedicate all we are and all we have to God, what it actually brings is great joy. That word joy or rejoicing, it comes up five times in this short passage, three times in verse 43 alone. It says, on that day they offered great sacrifice. It says rejoicing. Because God had had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. Here's the truth, church. Joy is the natural result of sacrificially dedicating ourselves to God. When we live in obedience to God, when we live unto him for his glory and for his purpose as he sees fit, what we're doing is we're actually living in the sweet spot because God created us for that very thing, and that's where life really is. That's where the most joy and blessing really is, if we would live as he designed it. So what you get as you live in sacrificial dedication unto God is you don't just get mere happiness, you get joy that transcends circumstances. You get joy that that transcends situations. Here's the honest truth, church. When you have no joy, it is a pretty good indicator that you are worshiping the wrong thing. When you have no joy, it is a pretty good indicator that you are worshiping the wrong thing. See, the reality is, and just need to hear, some of you, maybe you're here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're just figuring out what you think about any of this stuff, right? Here's the reality. You are a worshiper. Every one of us is. It's the very thing that God designed every human being ever to do. It's the one thing we are absolute best at, every one of us. We are all worshipers. And so the question is not, will you worship? The question is, who or what will you worship? Romans was sense that instead of worshiping the creator, oftentimes what happens is we worship the creation, worship people and things and stuff, right? Here's the reality. When you worship creation, it always ends in pain and death. It always ends there because the reality is that nothing in creation can bear the weight of your worship, Nothing can satisfy, nothing can fulfill, nothing can bear the weight of what you are needing it to give you except God. He's the one thing that doesn't run out. And so when you worship creation, it always ends in pain and death, but when you worship the creator God, it always leads to joy and life, always. And it's only when you worship the right thing that you'll have joy So we want to worship the right thing that you'll have joy. And so true worship is ultimately about sacrificially dedicating all we are and all we have to God. And what that produces in us is joy. And what it does is it fuels this cycle of worship all over again. Because as we have joy from responding to all God has done for us, it fuels our longing to give ourselves wholly back to him. And so it just keeps fueling the cycle of joy and worship and joy and worship. And it's the best endless cycle you can get yourself looped in, right? But the only way that you can be characterized by that kind of a worship, by a worship that is joyfully, sacrificially dedicating yourself, all you are and all you have to God, the only way you become characterized by that kind of worship is when you are responding to all that God has done for you. You cannot manufacture genuine worship. You cannot manufacture it for God. Genuine worship is always a response. It's always a response. See, the worship of God's people that we see here in Nehemiah 12 is a response to all that God had done for them. They remembered in chapter 9 about all the ways that he had been faithful and forgiving and merciful and generous and good to them in the midst of all of their sin. And they're seeing in their own lives how God's been faithful to not only bring them back to the promised land, but to empower the rebuilding of the wall and their revitalizing of their community. And they're seeing God's endless faithfulness and goodness to them in light of, in spite of all of their sin and rebellion. And their joyful worship is a response to him. The same is true for us, church. The only way that you become characterized by that kind of real worship is when you are responding to all God has done for you. When you're responding to the good news about the gospel, when you see God sacrificially giving himself to you. Remembering at Christmas that the God of the universe, the king and the creator of everyone and everything, made himself a tiny baby who had to learn how to walk and write and think and talk, that he made himself nothing for you. And when you see that that same God sacrificially laid down his very life for you to receive the penalty that your sin justly deserved, and when you see that he did it for you not begrudgingly, But as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It's only when you are responding to the good news of the gospel that you'll be characterized by a true, genuine kind of worship. Remember, Romans 12, it says it this way. It doesn't just say, so offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It begins, it says, in view of God's mercy. In view of his mercy. Offer yourselves. All you are, all you have, to him as a living sacrifice. It's only when you keep coming back to the good news of the gospel that you will be filled with a kind of true, genuine worship. It's the only way you do it. In fact, when you keep coming back to the gospel, you won't be able to help but being, you won't be able to be helped but welling up with a worship for God that's not just joyful singing but it's a joyful giving of who you are and all that you have to him. And when our worship is not characterized by a joyful, sacrificial dedication of all we are and all we have, the solution is not to try harder. You can't manufacture that kind of a worship. The solution is to remember. The solutions to remember. Church, that's why I always get to Jesus. Without him, this passage is just a list of the stuff you need to do better and try harder at. It's a list of stuff you will endlessly fail to do. But if you keep coming back to him, then what happens is your heart wells up with joy and gratitude. And instead of duty and obligation to give yourself and all your stuff back to God, what happens is you do it because you love him. And you can't help but do it. See, our lack of genuine, true worship is because we have either never known or forgotten the grace of God. And so the solution is not to try harder, but is to again set your eyes on Jesus, to remember him so that you might be filled with a love for him that overflows into a life of joyful, sacrificial dedication of all you are and all you have to him. That's what we're doing. We're remembering the good news of the gospel every week when we take communion together. We're reminding ourselves that the great God of the universe laid down his life to be broken and his blood to be shed so that you might be right with him. You might be forgiven and cleansed and loved. And so communion, it does not make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with God. What it does is it's a chance for you to remember and to again set your eyes on Jesus so that you might be full of a joyful worship unto him that looks like giving everything you have and all you are back to him. And so as we sing and worship and remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you have put your trust in Jesus to be your savior and your Lord, if he is the one who by faith you have received his sacrificial work on your behalf, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. You can go back and dip the bread in the juice or grab one of the communion packs, there's a table on the left and on the right, and you don't need to be a member here, you just need to belong if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and whether or not you want to follow him or whether or not he's worth dedicating all you have and all you are to, I just want you to know how welcome you are here. I am so glad that you would join us. That you would. I just want you to know your questions are welcome here and your doubts are welcome here. And wherever you're at in your process, you are welcome in this church and in this community. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion because God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after just going through the motions. He wants your whole heart surrendered to him. And so if you do that by faith this morning, then go back and take communion. Do it in joyful worship as you receive by faith his gift of life. Wherever you're at this morning, though, I want to encourage you as we remember the gospel together in song, talk with God. How is God's word challenging your view of worship this morning? Where does your view of worship need to be course corrected? Where does it need to be changed? Is your worship characterized by a sacrificial dedication of all you are and all you have to God? Or is it just some singing? Is it just giving you God some of yourself? Or is it just giving God the leftovers of your time and your talent and your treasure? Or is your worship characterized by giving all you are to him and all you have? Is your worship, is your sacrificial dedication to God, is it joyful or is it full of duty and obligation? And if it is, ask God to show you what you are worshiping instead of him that is robbing your joy, but also ask him that he would make the gospel beautiful to you, so that what wells up in your heart is a joyful worship for him. Church, of all the people in all the world, we have the most to celebrate Because the great king of the universe has made us right with him by faith. Not because you deserved it, in spite of the fact that you never could. And so there is such joy in worshiping Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you. I know I've gone long this morning, and I pray by your grace that you would cause whatever was from you to sink in deeply to our hearts. Jesus, we just confess. We worship all. The, we worship creation instead of You, the Creator God, all the time. It never gives us what we're looking for, but we keep running after it. God, by Your grace, would You empower us to be captivated by You? That we would have a superior love for You that leads us in seeing and remembering all that you have done for us, that fuels a joyful, sacrificial dedication of all we have and all we are to you. God, for our good and for your glory, would you cause that to be true in us? We pray. Amen.